Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you wonder how much extra length, width, and thickness to leave when rough milling your stock? Do you want to know how to make curved moldings by hand? Are you interested in adding turned elements to your furniture? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 53 of the show for July 17th, 2019. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. And thanks to a new patron this week, Guillermo Wright Reese, for signing up to support the show. Listener support helps to keep this show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. If you're already a patron, again, I thank you. And be sure to head on over to the Patreon post page to submit your questions and requests for the next patron Q&A video. So this week we are going to get right into the listener questions. So our first question for this week comes from Dave. He says, I have a couple of quick questions on milling stock from rough boards. First, when selecting rough, rough timber, how much extra width, length, and thickness do you allow for if you have some final dimensions in mind? Will this typically be a fixed amount or do you measure bowing and cupping and base it on how much flattening it might need. Second, when getting stock down to final size, when would you decide between sawing and planing? For example, if I've got some two by two stock to which will end up being one and a half by one and a half, should I saw it closer to final dimension, then mill square of the plane or mill a face, mill a flat face and edge and then saw? Is there some rule of thumb you have for deciding that there's too much material to move to remove even with a scrub plane? So uh, the first part of your question, I think, is probably a little more straightforward. Um, I tend to to leave my stock. Um, I don't want to say quite, you know, uh, quite a bit oversized. Um, I, I tend to get pretty close to final dimension um, because Again, talking about the the cup uh, and the bowing of the board, um, I want to remove as much of that by sawing as possible. So what I mean by that is, you know, if I've got a wide board and I'm going to rip some parts out of it, if I've got, you know, maybe a 10 inch wide board and I need some six inch wide parts, I'm going to rip those out of that 10 inch wide board because that in itself is going to eliminate a good amount of that cupping before I even get to planing it. Um, so one of the first things I'm going to do is cross cut and rip parts um, before I start planing. I won't start planing any boards until after I've got them rough cross cut and rough um, ripped. Um, and again, that is to minimize the amount of cupping and, uh, that I have to plane out of a board and bowing as well. Um, I'm trying to start with stock that's fairly flat and fairly straight, so I don't have a lot of cupping and bowing to uh, to remove. But there's always that inevitable amount that you're going to have to deal with. So, um, when it comes to rough length, um, usually an in, an inch oversized or less. Um, you know, if there's cracks or checking in the end of the board, I'm usually cutting that off before I even start to worry about um, you know sizing my parts. I'm going to typically lay out on the board with some chalk where I'm going to get the parts that I need to get from 
and then I'm going to cross cut and rough uh, and rough rip that stuff um, oversized. So the cross cutting, usually an inch oversized over length or less. Um, ripping, I would say a half inch over or less. Um, you know, and again, it really depends, um, like you said, on how bad the boards are. If I can get less than a half inch, that's even better because that's less that I have to worry about. But if I've got an edge that's got um, got a good crook in it, um, got a good bow in it, then I might have to, you know, plane that edge straight. Then I might need a little, leave a little bit more width um, so that I can plane that first edge straight. Um, but you know, usually my rough ripping is is no more than about a half inch over over width, and length uh, no more than about a uh, an, an inch or less over length. As for thickness, I don't worry about that too much um, because I'm not usually, you know, I don't usually follow the rule of, you know, um, plane your stock to, to rough thickness and then come back and plane it later. Uh, when I plane my stock, I'm planing it to final thickness and I'm using it right away because I don't plane all, I don't mill and plane all of my boards ahead of time and then set them aside. Um, I don't find it very efficient to work that way when you're working by hand. So, you know, if I'm going to mill stock, I'm milling it for a specific purpose that I'm hopefully going to use it for that day. Um, if I'm making a, a case side, for example, um, you know, I'm going to try and, and mill up the stock for that case side and cut the case joinery that day if I can, um, so that I can, you know, rough assemble it and keep everything kind of flat and, and in the orientation that I want. If I can't do that, you know, then I may have to um, leave it a little bit over thickness, um, I, but I try not to to worry about that too much because most of the time I can size my joinery, um, you know, to the thickness, whatever thickness that the board is. Um, so I don't pay too close attention to getting things to exact thicknesses when I'm working planing completely by hand because it's uh, I just don't really need to. So so I don't worry about that too much. As for your second question, when getting stock down to final size, when do you decide, decide between sawing and planing? Um, I find that, it, well, it depends. So, I mean, if we're talking about um, ripping, you know, just, you know, on a, like a four-quarter board, um, sawing is going to be a lot faster in most cases. Um, if I've got, uh, you know, an inch that I, that has to come off that board, it's getting sawn. Uh, no doubt about it, because it's going to be a lot faster for me to saw off an inch than it is going to be for me to plane off an inch. Um, if it's a half inch, usually about a half inch or less, if that board uh, isn't too long, I'm going to plane it because I can set a, a jack plane for a pretty rank cut and hog off a half inch pretty quickly. So I would say if it's a half inch or less, um, I'm typically going to plane it. Um, if it's more than a half inch, I'm usually going to saw it because it's just going to be a lot faster for me to saw, especially in hardwoods, it's going to be a lot faster for me to saw off an inch of, of width than it is going to be for me to plane off an inch of width. Um, in terms of thickness, as I said, I don't, I don't do too much resawing uh, because it's just very slow. It's usually much faster to plane thickness than it is to saw it. So, uh, so usually I'm planing because we're usually talking about, you know, an eighth of an inch or something like that. So, um, you know, in terms of, of saw it or plane it, we're really not talking about um, getting into sawing until we get over about a half an inch to remove. So our second question comes from Elmer, and he, he actually uh, requested this as a, 
uh, a suggestion for the July Q&A video. Um, but unfortunately, uh, uh, there's no way I'm going to be able to address this one in the July Q&A video. I just uh, it's, it's one of those things that's going to take me some time to put together. So I'm um, putting it aside for a future Q&A video um, and I, I will get to it at some point. Um, but I thought I still thought it was a good question to, to talk about. So his question was, how were gooseneck moldings made, such as those seen on tall case clocks or high boys with bonnet tops? Uh, so essentially, for those who, who aren't familiar with a, a gooseneck molding, um, it's a, a molding that was used quite often on period furniture from the, the uh, 17th and uh, 18th centuries. It's essentially a, uh, a curved molding. Um, and these days, you wouldn't think too much about, you know, how to make a curved molding. You just run it over your router table. Um, but in, when we're talking about doing it completely by hand, curved moldings can be a bit of a challenge. Um, because you can't make them with molding planes. Molding planes are designed to make straight moldings. So, um, so, but Elmer's question is how do we make curved moldings like a gooseneck molding? Um, and I think Elmer already knows the answer to this because I'm pretty sure I've, uh, I've read his, uh, his blog on the, on the topic, but, uh, you know, essentially, um, they're just carved and there's really no other way to do it. So um, I haven't done a gooseneck molding per se, because I haven't done a, a tall case clock or a bonnet top or anything like that, but I've done some curved molding. Um, and really it's just, you know, you just have to carve it. Um, the, the trickiest part I think is the, the layout really. Um, what I'll typically do is start with, uh, start with the layout on the end grain of whatever the molding profile is going to be. So cut your molding stock to shape. So if it's going to be a gooseneck, uh, what I would do again, I haven't done a gooseneck, but here, how I would go about the process would be to cut the gooseneck molding to shape the, the stock that's going to follow the sh that S shape of the gooseneck molding. Um, and I would leave it a little bit long on both ends. So that S shape would have some kind of straight sections on either end that I could then cut off later because part of it's going to be mitered. Um, and then the top end might either be mitered or it might have a rosette or there might, you know, something else to terminate that molding up at the top part of the gooseneck. So, um, you know, for starters, I would leave the two, the leading and trailing end of the S, um, I would leave them long to be cut off later. Um, then work out the profile of your molding. What is that molding profile going to look like? And draw that on the end grain. And I would draw it on both ends. Once I had the molding profile drawn on the ends, I would start to lay out the transitions along the faces. Um, you could do this, you could make up some kind of marking gauge that could follow the curve in order to do this. Um, I would probably tend to do it with uh, just a pencil and a uh, a combination square or, or you know something along those lines just to get um, the profile of the molding transferred to the face of the molding. Once I had that done I would try to uh, make a few rabbits perhaps um, whether I was carving them down with a, a straight chisel um, or whether I could use a router plane in some cases you might be able to use a router plane um, use a marking gauge to scribe in some of the shallower details of the uh, of the molding profile 
and you might be able to remove some of that material with a rabbit plane. Uh, not, sorry, not a rabbit plane, a router plane. Um, and what couldn't be removed with the router plane would just have to be carefully removed with a flat chisel to get down to those rabbits. Um, similar to making a molding uh, with molding planes, like you know, cutting rabbits with a rabbit plane first. Once I had the rabbits, then I would grab some carving gouges that would approximate, you know, get close to um, the curve of the molding profile and the end grain. So I would try to match the curvature or sweep of those carving gouges as closely as possible to the sweep or the curvature of the molding profile and start to carve away that material in the rabbits. Taking it, you know, one step at a time, one profile at a time, one curve at a time, um, and really just taking my time. Once I got the profile roughed in, what I would probably do would be to uh, file, custom file a scraper into a, essentially a scratch stock. Uh, and that scraper would be the negative profile of the molding that I was making so that I could do two things with that scratch stock. First, I could use it to test um, along the molding where more material might need to be removed with the gouges. Um, but then I could also refine that molding profile with the scratch stock, uh, with the scraper. You might not be able to use it in a body, in a scratch stock body. You may have to freehand it depending on how tight that gooseneck is. Um, if it's, you know, uh, if it's a, a, a slow enough curve, uh, you could probably put the scratch stock in a, a wooden body. Uh, but I think it would probably be just be just as easy uh, to control it freehand because it's going to be a, a pretty big scraper and a pretty big profile. So I'm not sure that you would necessarily need to put it in any type of scratch stock body. But uh, yeah, I would custom file uh, a scraper that I could use to test the profile at various points to see if any more material needed to be removed with the gouges, uh, and then also to scrape and refine that profile and get it to be as consistent as possible. The one thing um, that I will say, and, and this really goes for um, miters of handmade planed moldings um, as well, not just gooseneck moldings or, or curved moldings, but when you go to miter that molding, chances are it's not going to line up perfectly at the miter like you might have with a machine made molding. Um, more than likely you're going to need to slightly tweak the that miter. Um, and I did this, I, I'm, I'm almost positive that I, I showed how I do this in the video that I did on making the, um, the mitered frame for the oil painting that I had. Um, and I just took some carving gouges and just kind of blended the corner of the miter together where the profile didn't meet up exactly perfectly. Uh, and it's just a matter of, you know, relieving the high spots and kind of blending everything in, um, at that mitered corner. And that's kind of the beauty of a, a handmade molding is that, um, you can do that. You can, you know, you can have minor variation. You can kind of carve that mitered, uh, that mitered corner where everything meets, um, and a little bit of inconsistency really is not a big deal. Uh, and then, you know, use your, your scraper as well to kind of refine that corner, uh, as well if you need to. So, so yeah, I don't think there's really a, an easy answer or an easy way to do it. Uh, essentially it's really just carve it and scrape it. And that's really the only way 
that uh, that I can think of to uh, do a curved molding by hand. So that's actually all the questions that I have for this week. As always, if you have questions, feedback, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is going to be a short discussion on different types of uh, of lathes and then uh, how to get started turning for furniture so and I I'm being very specific when I say turning for furniture because um, I am really not much of a bowl turner or um, you know I don't turn ornaments or vases or anything like that um, you know I I may turn a bowl here or there but I'm not very proficient at it. It's not something that I have a lot of experience doing. So um, my turning really to this point has been limited to furniture work. So that's what I really want to focus on because if you do a lot of flat work, that's probably what you're um, most interested in is, is adding some turning to your furniture work. So the first thing you're really going to have to decide is, is what type of lathe do you want to get, get into. Um, and there are several different types, and I don't mean you know mini or midi or full size lathe. Um, I mean more in more general terms, right? So there are there are electric lathes, um, and that's probably the path that most people take. Um, but for for folks that are interested in doing things without electricity, there's some options as well. Uh, you could get into a spring pole lathe, which is probably the uh, the oldest form uh, of lathe that. Um, that, that we would deal with. Um, and you can also get into a treadle lathe where the, the treadle operates a flywheel. Uh, and this would, this would help to create a continuous rotation or continuous motion lathe. So I actually learned to turn on a spring pole lathe. I, I did not have an electric lathe as my first lathe. My, fir- my very first lathe was a spring pole lathe. Um, and I taught myself to turn using that lathe. And uh, it's a very viable way to go. Um, folks like, you know, Peter Follinsby have used spring pole lathes all their life um, and have never bothered to to uh, switch to anything else. And, and he's extremely efficient with it. He's very good at it. Um, and you can do a lifetime of work, furniture work uh, and bowl work um, with nothing more than a spring pole lathe. Uh, the benefits of the spring pole lathe, um, extremely inexpensive to build uh, compared to, you know, uh, building a, a treadle, a flywheel treadle lathe uh, or buying an electric lathe. Um, the, the cash outlay for a spring pole lathe can be next to nothing. You can literally go into the woods, uh, chop down a tree, split it out into parts for the spring pole lathe, uh, grab a couple of bolts from the hardware store, to uh, make the points for the puppets and uh, you're basically good to go from there. You, you really don't need uh, to invest much of anything financially to get started in turning if you go with a spring pole lathe. Uh, the benefit of the spring pole lathe in terms of, um, in terms of, of human powered lathes is that the spring pole lathe has a ton of power you can really hog off wood heavy and fast with a spring pole lathe because there's a lot of torque 
um, that the string is wrapped around directly around the workpiece, um, which provides lots of friction and lots of contact with the workpiece, and your leg is in direct contact. So every treadle of your leg um, is in direct contact with the workpiece and is turning that workpiece two or three times every time you treadle down. Um, so there is a ton of power and a ton of torque with a spring pole lathe. So again, you can remove material extremely quickly. The downside of the treadle lathe is the speed. They are slow lathes. You're looking at probably two to three revolutions per treadle. Um, and if you're treadling, you know, maybe once a second, probably not even quite that fast, you know, but let's say you're, you're treadling at a pretty quick pace of once a second, you're looking at 60 treadles per minute. Um, so about 120 to 150 revolutions per minute, um, not a very fast pace, um, especially when you're starting to get into spindle work where uh, on an electric lathe, spindle turners may turn at 2000, you know, 2500 RPMs, um, you're turning at about 100 RPMs with a spring pole lathe. Tons of power, not a lot of speed. Um, the other thing with spring pole lathes is you are going to want to make sure you're using tools that are honed with stones, not just off the grinder. Uh, most people who turn on an electric lathe, and not all, but most will go directly from the grinder back to turning. They don't bother to, um, to hone the edges of their turning tools any more than what the grinder gives them. With a spring pole lathe and a, a treadle lathe, flywheel treadle lathe for that matter, you're going to want to hone your tools with stones because um, it's the, the sharpness of your tools is really what's going to give you the finish, the, the nice finish off the tool because you don't have the speed that you have in an electric lathe. In an electric lathe, lathe it's really the speed that gives you that nice finish. Some people do hone their tools. Um, I hone my tools even though I, I'm turning on an electric lathe these days. Um, I still turn with my spring pole lathe tools, which are carbon steel tools, um, and I still hone them on stones. Um, but most people don't. They rely on the speed of the lathe itself to give them the, uh, the off-the-tool smooth finish. So um, if you're looking for that off-the-tool smooth finish on a spring pole lathe, You've got to hone your tools razor sharp, just like you would your, your paring chisels. Um, and you're really not going to be doing much sanding. Um, sanding on a spring pole lathe kind of sucks. Um, you can do it, but uh, it's a slow going process and uh, you're really going to spend a lot of time at it. So the, the better you can get turning on the spring pole lathe um, and the sharper you can get your tools and the better you can get your surface off your tools, the better you're going to be on a spring pole lathe. You're also, on a spring pole lathe, really going to have to learn to turn with um, conventional tools, conventional chisels and gouges, skews, straight chisels, and gouges. Um, I don't think, and, and I'm not speaking from experience because I haven't used the carbide tools, but I don't think you're going to get very good results on a spring pole lathe using the carbide insert tools. They're essentially scrapers. Um, and scraping on a spring pole lathe usually does not go very well because you just don't have the speed that you need to scrape cleanly. Um, so you're really going to have to learn to use conventional tools. So if that's not something you're willing to do, you may want to avoid the spring pole lathe. If you just want to get in there and turn some stuff for your furniture pieces using the, you know, the carbide insert tools, 
um, probably going to want to stay away from the spring pole lathe. Um, but other than that, I mean, they can be made portable. I'm not a big fan of the portable ones. That I had one that was pretty much portable, and I really felt that it needed to be heavier to be to be better. I I've used a uh, a much heavier version of a spring pole lathe that was uh, built based on the version in Rubo's book, um, and it was a much better lathe than my portable lathe. Uh, much better feedback, much more stable. Um, and you can just really feel the difference using that lathe versus the small portable ones. But the portable ones will get the job done. And again, very inexpensive, very simple to build. The next step up in terms of human power lathes would be the, um, the flywheel treadle lathe. Now, these are going to be more expensive to build. They're going to be more complicated to build than the spring pole lathe. Um, however, they have the benefit of continuous rotational motion. One of the things with the spring pole lathe is the reciprocal motion. Uh, as you treadle down, the workpiece spins towards you and, you and you make your cuts. As you release pressure on the treadle and it springs back up, the workpiece reverses direction, spins away from you, and you, can't, you won't be cutting on the upstroke. You'll only be cutting on the down treadle. The flywheel treadle lathe solves this problem by introducing a flywheel which lets you which introduces um, continuous rotational motion to the workpiece so it's more like turning on an electric lathe because the piece is constantly spinning towards you you don't have to worry about that backward stroke where the piece spins away from you like you do on the spring pole lathe um, you can get much more speed on a treadle lathe than you can on a spring pole lathe because your flywheel is typically about two feet in diameter um, and the the mandrel or the the drive um, part of the um, of the drive spur where the belt wraps around is usually about two or three inches in diameter so you can see that the gearing difference right there where you know one spin of a, of a 24 inch diameter wheel compared to multiple spins uh, multiple rotations of that headstock which is only two or three inches in diameter um, so much faster on the treadle lathe in fact you can get a treadle lathe up to the point where it would almost rival what you can do on an electric lathe the downside to the treadle lathe, though, is with that increase in speed, you have a significant loss in power. Um, if you try to really hog material off on a flywheel treadle lathe like you would do on a spring pole lathe, you're likely just going to stall the lathe and the piece is going to stop dead. So your cuts are going to have to be a lot lighter on the flywheel treadle lathe. Um, I have also turned on flywheel treadle lathes at the, the museum that I used to volunteer at. Um, and I can attest to the fact that, you know, if you try to take too deep of a cut, um, you will stall the lathe because the, the belt just, the drive belt just slips um, and that the treadle continues to spin, but the belt just slips on the, the headstock. So uh, you do have to take much lighter cut. Your tools do need to be just as sharp as they were on with the uh, with the spring pole lathe. You're probably still going to want to use um, tools that have been honed with a stone, um, but you can um, you can probably do some sanding on your treadle lathe 
that you probably weren't going to do on the spring pole lathe because you can get the speed much higher on a flywheel treadle lathe. Um, other than that, all the you have all the benefits that you have on an electric lathe um, with a with a flywheel treadle lathe. You have the continuous motion, you have the speed. Um, you can use pretty much all the same tools that you would use on an electric lathe. Um, the difference being you are going to have to pump that treadle in order to make the lathe spin. Um, the other thing is that they are a bit more complex to build. You're going to need to build a flywheel. You're going to need to incorporate um, bearings into the system that you really didn't need in the spring pole lathe so that the the build is more complex and it's a, uh, a lot more fussy and finicky than a spring pole lathe because you've got to get the axles lined up, you've got to get all the bearings lined up so that they don't bind, um, you've got to get the the flywheel lined up with the drive pulley on the on the uh, drive center. Um, so there's a lot of things to work out and get lined up and get just right for a flywheel treadle lathe to work smoothly. Um, but if you can get one to work smoothly, um, they are pretty fun to turn on uh, until your leg gets tired. And then, of course, there is the electric lathe, and this is going to be the biggest investment, uh, regardless of which type or size of lathe you choose, whether it's a mini, a midi, or a full-size lathe. They are going to be significantly more expensive than a spring pole or treadle lathe. The difference being when you get your electric lathe, you're going to uncrate it, uh, put it together, and get right to turning. You're not going to have days or weeks of building to get to the point where you'll be able to turn. Um, the uh, electric lathes will do just fine with high-speed steel tools and most, uh, as I mentioned before, most people just sharpen right off of a grinder with um, using an electric lathe. A lot of people don't even bother to hone their tools. Um, I'm turning on an electric lathe these days uh, because I was starting to get um, knee problems with my old spring pole lathe. I was uh, re-injuring, I, I was re-aggravating an old uh, hockey injury from college. Um, and I got to at one point where I actually couldn't walk for a week um, after using my spring pole lathe because it just re-aggravated an old knee injury. So um, I could no longer use a spring pole or a treadle lathe and, and, and pretty much had no choice if I wanted to turn. I pretty much needed to go with an electric lathe. So that's what uh, I've been doing recently. I do still use, so let's, we got the, I think we pretty much got the lathes out of the way. So we'll talk a little bit about the tools and we'll talk about, you know, just for, for, Turning for furniture, that's really what I want to focus on today, is turning for furniture. Spindle work between centers is essentially what we're looking at. No, not faceplate turning, no bowls, nothing like that. We're talking about turning between centers, doing spindle work. So in terms of tools, um, you're going to need a few. You don't need too many. Um, I would suggest you're going to want a roughing gouge, your, which is a, a fairly usually it's a fairly flat gouge um, in terms of spring pole work uh, and and oftentimes treadle lathe work as well most modern roughing gouges tend to be pretty deeply fluted um, you know big u-shaped things so there's a bit of a difference between um, the older 
style roughing gouges and the new style roughing gouges, but you will need a roughing gouge. And that's usually a gouge that runs anywhere from three quarters of an inch to an inch and a half in, in width. Um, and it can be a fairly shallow gouge. It can be a really deep fluted gouge. It doesn't really matter. It's a gouge that's going to be gound, uh, ground and sharpened straight across, just like uh, your typical carving gouge. Um, just a lot heavier duty. Um, I am still using the roughing gouge that I, I had for my pole that is an Ashley Isles um, carbon steel gouge. It is not a high-speed steel gouge. Uh, most people who turn on an electric lathe will use will opt for high-speed steel tools um, because they feel that um, they can go right from the grinder right back to the lathe and also the the high revolutions the high rpms of the electric lathe um, there's no no fear of damaging or drawing the temper out of the gouge uh, from the actual turning itself my feeling is that if you are heating up your gouge so much on your lathe that you're drawing the temper out of it you should really be sharpening your gouge a lot more often um, if a gouge is sharp it should cut and it shouldn't there shouldn't be that much friction uh, where you're you're pulling putting that much heat in the in the gouge to draw the temper out of it so um, i still use my carbon steel gouge roughing gouge from or and several carbon steel turning tools actually from my pole lathe turning days because I really like the tools. Um, I like the steel in them. I like how sharp I can get them and I can get really nice finishes right off the tool because I can get those tools so sharp. So um, I use an electric lathe now. I still use my carbon steel turning tools and they work just fine. The benefit of the carbon steel um, is that they're much less expensive. Um, if you look at a decent, you know, just to compare apples to apples, let's look at the Ashley Isles line. Um, I have the um, the carbon steel roughing gouge for the pole lathe that they sell, and I think it was about $25, maybe $30, something like that. Um, their roughing gouges in their high-speed steel, I think, are around $60 or $70. They're, they're extremely, you know, there's a big difference in price. So carbon steel tools can be had much less expensively uh, unless you go with, you know, a lower end high speed steel tool. Um, so a roughing gouge, you're going to need a roughing gouge. That's going to take you from your initial square stock to your initial round. Um, the second tool I would recommend would be a skew chisel. Um, and again, I'm using, I'm still using the three quarter inch carbon steel skew chisel that I used for my pole lathe. Um, and I use the skew chisel a lot. Um, I, I use it for, um, for parting in parts. A lot of people use the parting tool. Um, I love to use the skew chisel to kind of cut V's in and instead of using the parting tool because I think it's much cleaner that way. Um, and I, I just got used to using it on the, on the spring pole lathe because you really can't use a parting tool all that successfully on a, uh, on a spring pole lathe. So if you're going with a spring pole or, or a flywheel treadle lathe, you may want to think about not worrying about the parting tool right away. So roughing gouge and a skew definitely would be my first two recommendations. My third recommendation would be um, a spindle gouge, a, a detail spindle gouge, something about three eighths of an inch that you can grind a fingernail grind on. This is going to be for turning 
um, coves uh, and beads as well. I tend to turn beads with my skew chisel, um, but um, for, for cove work, you're definitely going to need some type of detailed spindle gouge. Um, again, I'm using the Ashley Isles carbon steel spindle gouge that I had from my pole lathe. Works a treat. Um, I haven't felt the need to change even though I am now using an electric lathe. Uh, I have not worried about upgrading, quote unquote, um, to a high-speed steel tool. I'm still using the carbon steel. I can still hone it with stones and it still works just great. Um, so those are the three main tools that I would say are going to be the most useful to you. The roughing gouge, the skew, something about a three quarters of it or to one, one inch wide, um, and a, a detailed spindle gouge, something about three eighths of an inch wide. If you're going to go the route of the pole lathe, uh, one more chisel that might be useful would be a wide chisel, like a two inch wide straight chisel. Um, and on a pole lathe, this is used for planing cuts. Um, and it is just like it sounds. Um, you're basically taking wide, thin, wide shavings um, that allow you to make very smooth cylinders on the pole lathe. Um, I used mine a lot when making like wooden screws for vices or clamps and things like that. Because with that two inch wide flat chisel, you could make really nice fine planing cuts and get a really nice f smooth flat um, blank for a bench screw or a clamp screw. So um, now that I'm using the electric lathe, I tend not to use that two inch wide planing chisel quite as much, but I do still grab for it once in a while. Um, but if you're using, if you're going to go the pole lathe route, I definitely recommend that two inch wide planing chisel as well. Uh, and even if you're going to go with a flywheel lathe, um, I think you could use it for that. Um, if you're going to go with the electric lathe, um, I would skip the two inch wide planing chisel and instead for your fourth tool, go with a parting tool. Um, I think that is really going to help you. It, it, you know, the parting tool is one of those tools that really doesn't work so well on a spring pole lathe, works okay on a um, flywheel treadle lathe, um, and works okay on an electric lathe. So um, you can do things a little faster with the parting tool than you can with a skew. Um, on an electric lathe. So, um, you know, the parting tool could be valuable and you can get some fairly inexpensive parting tools. It's not, it's not a finishing tool. So, um, you know, you're, it's not something you really need to, to spend a lot of money on your parting tool. But really those are the four, I think those are the only four tools you really need. Roughing gouge, skew chisel, uh, spindle gouge, and optionally the parting tool um, if you're working with an electric lathe or a flywheel lathe and even for those two lathes i would say the parting tool is optional you could do uh, most things that you would do with the parting tool you can do most of those things with the skew chisel and really not need the parting tool so really uh, if you were just getting started you could just go with the three chisels the roughing gouge the skew chisel and the spindle gouge um, and i think that's about all you would really need to get started then you're going to want some way uh, to measure your parts, uh, whether that's a, some type of dial caliper or uh, just, you know, or, or a vernier caliper um, or just a, an outside caliper that, you know, looks kind of like a, a pair of dividers, but, you know, curved so you can you can gauge outside measurements. And uh, and you can pretty much do all the turning that you need for furniture work with just those three tools and, uh, and a caliper or two. Um, I would suggest starting with some simple stuff, you know, maybe practice turning 
uh, just turn a cylinder and then take that cylinder and turn it into some beads and coves. Um, and then look at some simple turnings for, uh, you know, things like, uh, things like shaker legs uh, are, are good practice turning, um, you know, getting the pommels just right. Um, you know, that's my opinion that the hardest thing to learn, I think, with spindle turning is to is to make nice pommels. Once you uh, once you learn to make nice pommels, I think you can uh, you pretty much do anything in, in spindle turning, and uh, and adding to those turn elements is really nice in your furniture work because um, it just gives you that that little bit extra. Whether it's to to put a finial on something um, or a turned leg, or maybe you know turn and then carve some quarter columns or half columns or um, you know you could carve you could do a turned and carved leg so it just opens up a lot more uh, a lot more room to do to add to your your repertoire with your furniture work so um, I am very glad that I learned to turn uh, years ago uh, I'm glad that I learned to turn on a pole lathe because I feel like it made my turning on the uh, flywheel lathe and the electric lathe better because learning to turn on the pole lathe um, forces you to cut and use the traditional tools properly because you can't scrape with those tools on a pole lathe uh, you just make a mess of things so you have to learn to ride the bevel and to cut properly with your gouges and your and your skews um, so i would highly encourage you to uh to learn to turn with traditional tools. There's nothing wrong with carbide tools if you want to go that way um, with your electric lathe. By all means, go ahead. Um, you know, they're not. I don't have a lot of experience with them, so they're not. Uh, they're not tools I'm going to talk about really. Uh, my experience is all with the traditional tools, and uh, as I said, learning on a pole lathe really helped me to um, to improve my my turning on my electric on my electric lathe. So. Uh, I do recommend that at some point, even if you decide to start with the carbide tools, that at some point you start, you uh, you learn to use the traditional tools because you'll you'll get a much better finish off the tool once you learn to use them, and you'll reduce your sanding, uh, you know, to to very little needed, if any at all. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this. I'm extremely grateful for all the support you've all provided. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions, because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfindwoodworking.com slash htt053. In the show notes, you'll find links to that I referred to in today's show. And you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in the monthly Q&A video, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfindwoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening. Until next time, stay sharp, everybody.